One Week Season. Inner Circle fam, JM to win here, of course. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Inner Circle podcast. As always, a big shout out to those of you who are on here live. Um, I'm honestly, I'm always impressed and surprised that so many of you are on here live listening to me on 1x speed, making the time to be here. Uh, it's really cool to have kind of this audience here and have this community vibe. And as always, also thank you to those of you who listen after the fact. Uh, if you are listening after the fact, feel free to throw this baby on 1.5x speed. Let's go ahead and get started. So I say this sometimes, and I'm usually wrong, but I kind of think that tonight's will, tonight's session will be a little bit shorter than normal. Uh, typically, I end up going 45 minutes to an hour. I think tonight might be more like 30 to 45 minutes. But again, I am often wrong about that. We will see where things go. The first thing I want to talk about tonight, I'm actually I'm excited about tonight's segment. One of the things that's been interesting in doing this solo segment on Tuesday night is... The Saturday podcast has a structure created for it already. Zandamir and Hilo are going to come in and break down the slate that is kicking off the next day. So obviously each week is unique, but there's kind of a predefined structure within which they're able to work. So Hilo is able to prep and say, okay, here's what we're looking at in these games and here's what the slate is offering us. And, and so these different things fit into these different buckets. Whereas this Tuesday podcast, it's more broadly focused on training. And so every week there's this massive palette of topics that I can essentially choose from. And so one of the things that I'm wanting to focus on is making sure that we are hitting on highly important topics and drilling deep into them. I would rather hit on 13 topics across 18 weeks and go really deep into those than try to cover 30 or 40 different things on the surface. As we often talk about, the deeper you get into something, the deeper your understanding is and the sharper your ability is to take advantage of the things that you know. So we'll actually be talking about that a little bit more as we move into tonight's podcast in terms of roster construction. But the first thing I want to talk about is I've been reading a book by James Nestor called Deep. And if you're unfamiliar with James Nestor, he writes nonfiction, and typically he'll have a topic that he wants to learn about and explore. And through that topic, he does a lot of kind of traveling and, and hands-on understanding of a topic, and then he'll hit on all these tangential topics and so I'm reading this book called Deep, and the starting point for this book was about free diving. And so if you're unfamiliar with free diving, it's basically a competition where people dive, compete for like depth dives without any scuba equipment or any other breathing apparatuses. And they'll dive 25 stories deep, 30 stories deep, 35 stories deep. 
and hold their breath for, they'll be submerged for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And there's all these interesting things that like, once you pass, I think it's 40 feet, you no longer have to swim to, to go down. The buoyancy shifts. And basically these free divers will just put their hands by their sides and just drift downward. And as you go to deeper and deeper depths, your organs and your body starts start adjusting and basically allowing you to be, they uh, essentially adjust to a more amphibious state and allow the body to stay submerged for much longer than most of us assume is possible. So it's a very interesting book and a lot of interesting things really from like a, a physiological and psychological mindset that do relate to DFS insofar as the ways DFS relates to all of our other areas of life, as we kind of talked about on the Angles pod the other day. But one of the things that very specifically I wanted to talk about was uh, he was in part of this book. He was out free diving with this famous guy who free dives to take shark photographs. And so basically he can get closer to the sharks by free diving than he could if he had scuba equipment on that scares them away. And uh, so when he free dives with just his camera, the sharks kind of just treat him like another ocean animal. And one of the things that they were talking about through like their knowledge and learning about sharks through their ability to free dive with them and tag them and do all these different things is the sharks, as we learn more about them, they do a lot of their traveling in the deepest parts of the ocean, not the deepest parts, but deeper than we go, where it's completely black and eyesight doesn't help and sharks aren't using sonar. And so there were all these studies done on how do sharks navigate these, because, you know, the, the bottom of the ocean isn't just flat, right? There's canyons and there's mountains. And so how are they navigating through these treacherous paths blind? And basically there were these studies done and the studies were kind of refuted because it just didn't make logical sense. And then over the years, this has become a known fact that basically sharks and there are other animals that have this as well, have deposits of what's called magnetite in their skull. And it essentially allows them to connect to the magnetic field of earth and use that as their GPS system, so to speak. Where this gets interesting and applies to us and our topic tonight and what we're going to talk about is that humans also have small deposits of magnetite. And I'm awful at directions. Like I'm literally the worst person at directions you'll ever meet. As in, I'll miss the exit to my house sometimes. And if I'm leaving a parking lot and I think I'm supposed to turn left, I'll typically turn right knowing that my chances of right being correct are higher than left since I thought that left was the way I was supposed to turn. I'm also an extremely logical person. So why do I mention that? Well, there, there were studies done with humans and it was studies done. This is from memory. So I could have some of the numbers slightly off, but it was like the, the percentage chance of this being by chance was like 0.0005% or something. As in these studies were done broadly uh, in a lot of different places with huge sample sizes of people where they would basically drive them blindfolded to someplace far away from where they were and where they had no sense of direction and then would ask them to point, I believe it was either at, at the uh, 
you know, university or whatever that they had come from or point to North or whatever it was. And with an extremely high degree of accuracy, an extremely large percentage of these people were able to point in the correct direction. So think about me and how bad I am with directions and think about me and my logical brain and think about somebody like my wife, who's way less logical than me and just gets directions. She kind of just knows where she is. Now, it's not because she's using magnetite for that, right? But it's it's because she's not having to think logically through these things. And she just kind of has a spatial feel of where things are and where she's supposed to be. But the idea that these people, once blindfolded and unable to access any of their logic, were able to arrive at the right answer is really interesting to me, especially as things relate to DFS. And what I mean by that is this is something that Mike and I have talked about via text uh, often on this season is the so much of the talk, and we've talked about it in Inner Circle, right? Where does the talk in DFS originate from? Well, oftentimes it originates from what Silva and Levitan are talking about and what Silva is focused on is a the measurables and the athleticism of all these players and what Levitan is focused and, and as that relates to season long. And what Levitan is primarily focused on is cash games. Who are the sharpest plays on this slate? What's the best way to finish in the top 50%? But then again, all these content providers who are also playing MLB, also playing NBA, they're consuming this content. This is their Bible content for the week. And then they go out and say those same things that they've read, and that entrenches these thoughts with the fantasy and DFS public. And so from all of this, from like getting the feedback loop where we feel like this guy who might be the third or fourth receiver on this slate and might be the 10th or 11th receiver on a different slate, it gets entrenched into the public thinking that this guy is such a sharp play. And all of that starts from a point of logic of people like Levitan drilling down to what are the highest probability plays for cash games for this week. And a lot of times what ends up happening is we have such a hard time letting go of the logic that we're seeing on individual plays that we it's difficult for us to move over to the illogical plays or the plays that we perceive to be illogical. And a lot of times, just your understanding of what's going on with teams, with coaches, with players, with just from reading the NFL edge, it's like so much of my initial understanding of all the teams came from that accumulated knowledge over time of reading every single Roto World blurb for years when Silva and actually for a while when Levitan was still at Roto World and they were kind of running the show there, Silva in particular for several years running the show and those blurbs on Roto World were so high quality that you could read them, read all the blurbs every day, blurbs about offensive linemen, blurbs about back backup defensive linemen, so on and so forth. And you got such a great sense of all the teams, all the players, how all the pieces fit together. And same thing if you're reading the NFL Edge. You know so much. And a lot of you, if you're in Inner Circle, you've been reading the NFL Edge for years. You have such depth of knowledge about these teams, these coaches, how these teams try to win a game that letting go of the cornerback wide receiver matchup and the this guy's getting this many targets at this A dot and this guy, right? Like a lot of times you'll start, you'll start gravitating toward a player. And all you can see are the reasons why that player might fail. 
I go back to something that Mike and I talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. One of my favorite examples of this was 2000, I think it was 2015. And I had a huge week in DFS in which I used Chris Ivory at running back. So for some of you, that means nothing. But for those of you who have been in DFS or in fantasy for long enough, you remember Chris Ivory. And you remember that part of his profile was he really did not catch passes. And part of my profile as somebody talking about DFS has always been focus on, this is PPR scoring, focus on the running backs who catch passes. And there was this particular week where I just couldn't get off Chris Ivory. And I'd had a few a, a few of these players across the previous few weeks who I just, I couldn't get off of them, but I just kept arguing against those plays using logic and being like, well, you know, this guy can't succeed because this isn't this, this guy's volume isn't where it needs to be. This guy's, this isn't this or whatever it might be. And that week it was like, whatever, I'm going to pull the trigger on Chris Ivory because realistically he can go for a hundred yards and three touchdowns. He's just not the type of player I usually target. And this is from six years ago and off the top of my head, but I think he was 5,400 or maybe it was 4,500, but he was somewhere in that range. He was cheap enough that it's worth the risk on a guy who can go for a hundred yards and two touchdowns. But you guys have listened to me enough that you know, that's a hard one for me to pull the trigger on. And it was like, well, okay, it's like what Larejo talks about, right? Like when you can come up with enough reasons why a play is an excellent play, that player is probably going to be popular enough to match up with that level of reasons you can come up with. When you can come up with fewer reasons, that's when you get a play who's just kind of unpopular. And that particular week, very randomly, Chris Ivory caught six or seven passes and then also scored, I believe it was three touchdowns. And I think he got the hundred yard bonus as well. And just this randomly huge, very complete game from Chris Ivory. Now that wasn't the reason I won that week. That was one piece out of eight pieces on a roster, but that piece, obviously we see it all the time, right? First place in a tournament might be two points ahead of second place in a tournament might be a half point ahead of third place in a tournament, like an extra 10 or 15 points from this guy in this price range makes a huge difference. And it was one of those reminders for me that the logic is great and being able to break down everything is great. But what's interesting is so many DFS players lose money by clinging so tightly to the logical plays. And anytime I go through a stretch where my results aren't where I want them to be, and I have been so focused on the logically best plays, what I always remind myself is this isn't working so why not try something different? And it's like, there's always the fear that you're going to play the Chris Ivory play and it's going to fail and you're going to feel like you wasted a week. Whereas when we go super logical, it's much easier for us on a losing week to look back and say, well, you know, this guy was facing this cornerback and his volume had been this and his A dot was this and his red zone share was this and this team passes in the red zone at this frequency. And so it was a good play. And sure, that might be true, but how often are we going to A, see the NFL weekend play out very differently than we expected it to in the small sample size of a single week with 12 games, 11 games, whatever it might be. And across that number of games and that number of players, a lot of the spots that we think are so high certainty end up not being high certainty, or, or I should say, end up not producing in the small sample size the way we expected them to produce. How often are you going to let that happen to your rosters and not attack 
a different path. How often are you going to come out of a losing weekend and not go study first place rosters? Because I've been saying it for years, every week you should be looking at first place rosters. What finished in first place? What did they do? Right? How did this roster come together? Did it make sense based on what I know? Did it not make sense? And as you start seeing that over time, that accumulated knowledge over time, you start getting a sense of, okay, here are the things that work for first place rosters. Here are the things that don't work. Here are kind of the outlier first place rosters that, because we get this question sometimes of like, hey, this person did this, this, and this, and this really doesn't seem to make that much sense. But have you looked at first place rosters across 50 weeks? And do you recognize that, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And this type of roster has only won once or twice across these 50 weeks. And this other type of roster wins far more often. But as you start doing this and studying first place rosters, you do start to see that there are things that we would term illogical on these first place rosters fairly regularly from top players, from people who play 150 entries, not because they're rich, but who are rich because they've been playing 150 entries the right way. And they're putting together, so somebody like Osimo, if you look at one of his first place rosters, sometimes it might make perfect sense to you from the logic that you've been consuming throughout the week. Other times it might seem illogical. And I don't mean the roster construction and the approach to that side of things, because that very much lines up with everything we talk about. But I mean the actual individual plays that might be on that roster and the and the way that a game might be built around. And so you start to recognize that the clinging so tightly to the logic can impede us from finding what the best plays really are. And this is why Sonic talks about using part of Saturday for meditating. This is why Zandemir talks about getting in the hot tub on Saturday nights to just kind of clear his mind for a little bit. I've talked about, there was an entire baseball season where, so on the West Coast, baseball games, first first pitch is like 4.05, uh, 4.05 p.m. And there was an entire baseball season where probably four or five days a week, I would take a bath from 3 p.m. to 3.30 and turn off the light in the bathroom and it was just completely dark. And I would just lay there and kind of think creatively through the slate and how I could piece these rosters together is because they're, all the logic is important and it's super valuable because a foundation of information is valuable to have. But there also has to come a point where you say, how can I outmaneuver the field without just hammering in logical plays and recognizing that getting past that is sometimes the best thing you can do as a DFS player. And if you've been playing super logical DFS all season and it hasn't been working, don't assume that just continuing to be super logical is eventually going to break through. Instead, say, well, I would rather lose taking some risks, some smart risks where I feel like I can say, hey, this guy can have a huge game and maybe I can't describe it by the numbers, but by the NFL game, I can say, well, this it could play out like this. Right. Like was Ramondre Stevenson a better play than Mark Ingram if we played out the slate 100 times? No. Was he a better play than Mark Ingram 35 or 40 times if we played out the slate 100 times? Probably. And can you describe how that happens? Well, on the one hand, right, like we've seen Latavius Murray in this Mark Ingram role get faded by DFS players, you know, kind of thinking through the reasons why he might fail. And then he puts up 30 plus points. On the other hand, Mark Ingram's been with the team for two weeks and he's 31 years old. He's not really that great. 
anymore. Trevor Simeon's at quarterback. The Titans defense has been playing well. Like we can piece together the ways that, you know, Taysom Hill can get the touchdowns. Mark Ingram can end up having a disappointing game and put up, you know, he ended up putting up 20 points. He scored the touchdown. If he doesn't score the touchdown and a couple other things break the wrong way, well, he's now sitting on eight points or nine points or 10 points or 11 points. And that that was very much within his range. Now, 30 points was also within his range. Uh, I played Mark Ingram. I'm not saying he was a bad play, but I'm saying he was a better play than Ramondre Stevenson. But there's also a very clear path to Ramondre Stevenson having the better game. And so then thinking about that, thinking how that fits onto a roster. So we are going to move that over, that kind of broader discussion over to DFS stuff. This is not going to be 30 to 45 minutes, is it? Um, so the I, I was thinking the other day, specifically because of the way that I built this last weekend and, and the fact that I've been focused more on single entry the last few weeks, I was thinking the other day about when Cubs fan and I first started talking in 2015 and there were, I would guess seven or eight times in between 2015 and 2016 when I built one roster and it outscored all 150 of Cubs fans rosters. How is that possible? Now, again, we've talked at length about Cubs fans approach and why, why it's so smart for large field tournaments and why that approach should be, adopted more and more by us in when we're competing in large field tournaments. But what is the approach to a single entry type of play that can lead to those types of results? And then how can we take that approach and multiply it out to other types of play? How can we take that approach and multiply it out to five entry play, to 15 or 20 entry play? So I'm going to talk through my build from this last week which was a very classically like JM 2015, 2016 type build. So it was a fun week for me. Uh, it didn't, didn't work out the way I wanted it to, as you can imagine, because I talked up the Bucks passing stack so much last week. But the way that the roster was put together, I, I was able to come out of Sunday with 100% certainty that this roster is profitable over time because I entered Sunday with 100% certainty that this roster is profitable over time. Now, keep in mind, this is for contests with fewer than 500 entries. But again, you can build with this type of mindset and outscore all 150 rosters from a sharp 150 entry player. Like you're not sacrificing ceiling in this type of build, but it kind of helps you get a sense of what is one of the sharpest ways on the slate to build. Now, as we've talked about, there are multiple paths to 200 plus points. There are multiple paths to first place. But what I want to look for in these types of contests, in contests that we've always called bankroll building contests, contests where you can cash even if things don't come together and you're not sacrificing your path to first place along the way. What I want to look for in these types of contests is as much certainty as possible. And that I want that to be my starting point. So what was interesting for me this last week and when I realized that this was what I wanted to talk about in tonight's segment was I had two rosters and I already had them reserved, already had the plan to build two rosters. And when it came down to the end, the only difference between roster one and roster two was my defense because I couldn't find a better way to build this roster than the way I'd built it. 
in terms of like, there wasn't another spot where it was like, well, this is equally plus EV to swap out these two players. Now, I could have started from a totally different foundation and built a totally different roster that could have incorporated the same principles and gone, you know, equal shots at 200 plus points. But from the starting point I was using, there was nothing on the roster where I said, okay, well, like, let's swap these two plays for these two plays, and they're pretty equal. And so literally all I did was the eight main positions were the same across the two rosters and the defense was different. So what was this roster? Well, the starting point was Brady and Godwin and Evans. So Brady and Godwin and Evans, we talked about this at length last week, but Antonio Brown has missed three games. Uh, In all three of those games, those three players combined for 70 plus points. You can work through the numbers yourself as far as catches plus yards plus touchdowns plus Brady production and easily come up with how they get to 90 points and even 100 plus points. So you feel a with a high degree of confidence that this group can get to 70 plus points. And I would say if we played out last week and slayed 100 times, they probably get to 60 plus points 80 to 85 times they probably get to 70 plus points 65 times so it's a very high probability bet especially when we talk we consider what we talk about often which is DraftKings generally prices individual players in such a way that they go for 4x roughly once every four games so if we can find a spot where Brady going for 4x is a higher probability bet than once every four games And if he goes for 4X, we know who's benefiting. So you're getting three spots on your roster right at once. So let's say even even if we like stretch our imagination and say, really, this group would only go for 70 plus points against Washington once every three games. Well, that's still beating the once every four games mark that DraftKings tries to price things at. And we get three roster spots correct when it happens because of the way these pieces fit together. So... Starting point from there, that was very easy for me. And again, high probability compared to everything else on the slate that I'm getting a large chunk of roster spots correct with a large chunk of my salary and keeping me on pace for 175 to 225 plus points. Really quick side note there, 175 to 225 is kind of a sweet range to target where you can say... This this group could keep me on a pace for even more than 225 points. This group could obviously finish on a pace that keeps me below 175. But if you can kind of describe the scenarios in your head in which a two-player block, three-player block can go for that 175 to 225 point pace a decent amount of the time, then you should feel really strong and confident in that group of plays and kind of move on from there. So that was the starting point for my roster. The next point was... We had these two cheap running backs. So talk about what we've think about what we've talked about all season about the running back position. And the fact that people are generally paying 8K for running backs now, hoping to get 25 to 30 points. The days, well, the days of paying 8K and having a shot at 40 plus points are coming back because Christian McCaffrey's coming back. But outside of Christian McCaffrey, and uh, Scott Barrett said today that he would put Jonathan Taylor into this category, but Taylor's pass game work isn't quite there. So you're still betting on like the touchdowns and yardage. So I wouldn't quite put Jonathan Taylor there, but he can, he certainly proved that he can get up to the 35 plus point range. But outside of that, right, like we can look through Dalvin Cook's game logs. I think he had two games last year over 30. Both of them were like 40 point games. Uh, and that was it. No games the year before over 30. 
you know, like maybe 30.2 or 30.6 or something like that, but nothing above that. And then nothing this year, right? So like Dalvin Cook, look at his targets, look at his, how he gets his production, mostly through touchdowns. And so you basically know that over like a very large sample size, we're paying 8K, hoping that Dalvin Cook gets to about 30 points. Now, the reason he's priced where he's priced is because he has so consistently hit that 25 to 30 points over the years, over the last few years. Uh, but 30 points is still kind of the ceiling. Austin Eckler, when you really kind of break down how he's used, it's pretty difficult to describe a 40-point game from Austin Eckler outside of kind of fluky big plays happening. So again, a guy you're paying up for to, because not because he has such a high ceiling, but because he's just a lot more certain. He's pretty likely to get 20 to 30 points. Najee Harris, same thing. And so you go through the high-priced running backs last week who were all great plays, as we talked about. But then you realize, well, why would I want to spend 8K in tournaments for just a little extra certainty to get to 20 to 30 points when I could pay down at two running back spots with guys who have 20 to 30 point potential? So for me, the next step was paying down at both running backs. I then had to think about how popular both these guys were going to be. I had to think about something that Zandamir and Hyla talked about on the Saturday pod this last week. How many rosters are actually going to play both of them together, right? So you're lowering the ownership because a lot of people are going to play Dearness Johnson in one payup running back, or they'll try to get sneaky and say, oh, I'll fade Dearness Johnson, hope he fails. I know I'm playing DFS the right way. I'll play Mark Ingram and one payup running back. And fewer people were going to play the two of them together. The pivot I had to consider was, it was like, well, I'm going to pay down at these two running back spots. Once I once I decided that, once it was like, okay, look, these guys can give me 20 or 30 points. Why pay the extra salary just for a little extra certainty? I'm in tournaments, right? I'm trying to I'm trying to bet on things that if they go right, I get them right, and that gives me a shot at first place. So the decision I had to make was, do I play Ramondre Stevenson over Mark Ingram? I felt that Dearness Johnson, as, as Hilo talked about, right? Like there was no other running backs in the Browns roster, and their offense is so heavily built around the run that he was pretty safe. and. Mark Ingram, it was easier to describe the ways that he might fail, as we already talked about. So I had to kind of deeply consider, do I want Ramondre Stevenson? And what I ended up deciding was, I'm in a tournament with fewer than 500 entries. I'm going to take the guy who's going to get the better score 60 out of 100 times. And in my estimation, that was Mark Ingram, because the pass game role is, is likelier to be there than for Ramondre Stevenson. And Ramondre Stevenson is going to be more game script dependent than Mark Ingram. If I were in a larger contest, even maybe 1,500 entries, certainly like four or 5,000 entries, I almost certainly would have pivoted off of Mark Ingram over to Ramondre Stevenson, saying, look, Ingram is the slightly sharper play, but Ramondre Stevenson is going to be way lower owned, and so embracing certainty is less important as I'm getting into larger and larger tournament fields. So that's an important kind of teaching point there of how we adapt this type of thinking to larger field sizes. So I had the three bucks and I had the two cheap running backs. Uh, I went with Ricky Seals-Jones over Dan Arnold just because my roster had so many, even though the actual construction of my roster wasn't going to be super chalky, I had so many individually chalky pieces that Ricky Seals-Jones didn't feel like that much of an underdog to Dan Arnold. And in a game in which Brady and Evans and Godwin are going for 90 plus points, that increases the chances of Ricky Seals-Jones putting up 15, 18 points. Ricky Seals-Jones ended up getting three for 30 in the first half, injured his hip, missed the rest of the game. So that obviously didn't work out uh, the way I wanted it to. But that was kind of how I pivoted at tight end. That left me with a flex spot and a wide receiver spot. And I spent days working on these two spots. And what I finally came across 
was I kept thinking, well, very few people are going to have two cheap running backs and a pay up running back. I shouldn't shouldn't say very few, but compared to how how high the ownership was individually on Dearness Johnson and Mark Ingram, there weren't going to be nearly as many rosters that had both of them together and then paid up for a running back. So I was kind of messing around with Christian McCaffrey and how confident do I feel with PJ Walker under center and against this Arizona defense and and then playing around with Dalvin Cook and kind of being like, well, I mean, really, what are his chances of getting over 30 points? And Austin Eckler, same thing. And Najee Harris, same thing. And Jonathan Taylor was the closest I came to going to running back here. But then I started thinking, I didn't, I, Devontae Adams wasn't standing out to me all week. He wasn't even in the player grid, if I remember correctly. But because I was looking at all these running backs and saying, I really feel like I'm paying for a ceiling of 30 points. Well, Devontae Adams is the one guy who, from this group, had the highest likelihood of going for 40 points just because of the way he's used. Nothing about the game environment, nothing about the matchup, but just saying if we played out this slate over and over again, out of all these high-priced running backs and Devontae Adams, who's going to have the put the slate out of reach score most often? It's going to be Christian McCaffrey or Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams can put up these 40, 50-point games. We've seen it, we saw it multiple times last year. We've seen it once already this year just because he's such a central piece of this offense. And so what I basically did was I said, I'm going to look at playing Devontae Adams. And not because I think he's a better player than these other guys, but because I can't really decide among these guys. And so I want to take the guy who can actually post the put the slate out of reach score. But now I have another chalky piece. And so I ended up on a very interesting combo which was Devonte Adams plus Marquez Valdez Scantling. What's interesting about this combo is it's counterintuitive. On the surface, we would typically say if Marquez Valdez Scantling is having a big game, that's taking away from Devonte Adams. If Devonte Adams is having a big game, that's taking away from MVS. But we never want to stop with our surface thoughts in DFS. And what's really interesting is a lot of these things take 30 seconds to look up, two minutes to look up. I went to fantasydata.com, right down that website if you want. I went to fantasydata.com. I searched Devontae Adams in one tab. I searched Marquez Valdez-Scantling in another tab. I went to their DraftKings scores. So fantasydata.com, when you search a player, you can look at their historical scoring by site or by scoring type. So you can do standard scoring, PPR scoring, half PPR scoring, FanDuel, DraftKings. So looking at DraftKings and FanDuel, in six of the last 17 games, in six of the last 17 games, so more often than one in three games, in which both of these guys were playing and Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback, they scored 50 plus combined points. Their combined salary needed them to score about, I think it was 42 or 44 points to keep you on, I guess it was like 44 to 45 points to keep you on a 200 point pace. And we know that players are generally priced so that they will go for that type of score once every four games. Or if it's somebody like DK Metcalf, it's like once every seven games, but everybody keeps rostering him. So DraftKings just keeps his price up high. Um, or if it's somebody like Devontae Adams or Christian McCaffrey, right, they get there more often than once every four games, but there's a limit to how high DraftKings is going to price a player. So it was interesting to see, basically it was like, I think it was five of the last six games in which MVS had scored 15 plus points. 
Devontae Adams had also scored 30 plus. So on the surface, we say, well, these guys probably don't correlate. It's like what we talked about with the Titans last year, with the Titans smash games. Well, almost all of Derrick Henry's monster games came in monster Titans games, where Derrick Henry plus A.J. Brown plus Ryan Tannehill was the sharpest way to play it. On the surface, we would say, oh, these don't correlate. On the surface, we would say Devontae Adams and Marcus Valdez-Scantling don't correlate. But what we see historically is that if MVS is hitting big plays, that's opening things up underneath. If Devontae Adams is having a huge game, that opens things up for MVS. And so basically, almost without fail, when MVS has hit over the last whatever year plus, Devontae Adams has also hit. And so six out of 17 games, these two had combined for 50 plus points. Uh, it was uh, including one game of like 55 plus and one game of 60 plus. So. I am now sitting on massively high probability bets on this roster. I'm already comfortable saying that 65 out of 100 games, Brady plus his pass catchers are going for 70 plus with clear upside for them to go for 90 plus. I also see that more often than once every three games, basically like 35% of the time, Devontae Adams and MVS are going to combine for four and a half X their salary or more. And then I've got these two cheap running backs who should produce at a higher point per dollar level than any of the high-priced running backs. It's pretty hard once you've already locked in the Brady stack. It's pretty hard to find a better roster construction than that. Now, you can find equal roster constructions, especially from a different starting point. But as far as if we played out that slate, this last week in slate, over and over and over again, I'm 100% confident that that roster is highly profitable. I was also able to pay up for the Bills defense on one roster, the Cardinals defense on the other roster, which was basically um, just able to say like, hey, here are really good defenses in good spots that are going to be low owned because they're so expensive and everybody's kind of boxed into the pay down at defense mindset. And so then if one of these defenses gets 20 points, it's going to be low owned 20 points. And that was the roster. Now I looked at MVS and Devontae were both playing the late games. The Cardinals defense was my main defense and they were playing in the late games. So one way to do that would have been to just start with that roster doubled up and then have flexibility late in the early games to say, okay, what do I want to do with these three spots on this second roster? But you don't want to be making that decision on Sunday afternoon. So if you're going to build a roster that way, you should start thinking through some of the scenarios early. And so then late Saturday night, I'm working through, well, what are the other ways that I could build in this salary, right? Like the Panthers defense was going late. So there's a way to pay down at defense and then you freed up extra salary. But it was kind of like, I, I can't beat the upside and likelihood of the MVS Devonte pairing. So I don't want to move off of that. And so then it was just like, well, the Bills defense is going early. I'm kind of locking myself in price range on these other two positions now by just pivoting to a second defense. But it was like, I'm not actually going to change this. Devontae plus MVS gives me ceiling and it gives me a high, high probability of that ceiling hitting in two spots, a much higher probability than most people are getting in one spot. And so that's kind of the, the way that I look to build when I'm building single entry is how do I find places where I can be that confident that if we played out the slate over and over again, I would be in excellent shape. So the way things went on Sunday, I didn't even have to think about it because I was that certain heading into Sunday as far as working through the way that these pieces fit together, what the probability is compared to the probability of everything else on the slate and trying to guess in different spots. 
Now, from an assessing process standpoint, the Washington football team put together a 20-play drive to kill the clock to end that Buccaneers game. If the Bucs had stopped them at any point and forced a field goal and Bucs get the ball back with four minutes left or three minutes left or even two and a half minutes left or two minutes left, the chances are pretty high that Brady scores, that Brady passes for another 50 yards and a touchdown and that these pass catchers between Godwin and Evans pick up at least three catches for 40 yards. And if one of them scores that touchdown, we're now adding 20 points. I think that that group of players combined for like 43 points, which was pretty close to the worst case scenario in that setup, in that spot. If they even just got that last drive, they're still getting up to 60, 65 points, which is well shy of what I needed to win a tournament. But you look at it and you say, okay, well, that's not a bad score. Twenty Average of 20 points per player across three players on your roster is never a bad thing. Even though you had to overpay for it, that's never a bad thing. It's hard to average 20 points per player. And so again, that's not the goal when you're rostering players, but if that ends up happening, you could say, well, whatever, they hit their low end, I still average 20 points per player. And it's easy to look at a game like that and look at the final output and just be like, oh man, I must've been way off on this one. But when you think about it in NFL terms and you think about how close this was to breaking a different way, one third down stop on that 20 play drive. And you're probably picking up an extra 20 points from this passing attack from this, this three player block. And then they get sent to overtime. If Washington kicks a field goal there, it gets sent to overtime and you've already gotten up to 60, 65 points. And what if the Bucks get the ball in overtime? What if they start with the ball where they're attacking the end zone in overtime? Well, now you have an opportunity to get up to those 80 plus points. I've had, I've had weeks like that, right? Where a lot of fantasy scoring, you got to understand when you watch games, right? A lot of fantasy scoring comes at the end of the half and at the end of the game. And so if things don't line up just right for the possessions and aggressiveness to work out just right, that can be a huge swing for your rosters. I've had, I've had plenty of those weeks where that Washington football team gets stopped the Bucks get the ball back, drive down the field, pick up a bunch of extra fantasy points, score a touchdown, send it into overtime, and then score a bunch more fantasy points in overtime. I've had winning weeks where it all came down to that last possession working out the right way, and then overtime working out the right way for you to pick up all these extra points. And so understanding that the the line can be very thin on those types of things. Now, the reason why we like the Bucks play so much last week, kind of site-wide, was because in most situations for that game, you don't even need the those thin lines to play out in your favor toward the end of the game. You're already going to be in great shape because the Bucks like to pass regardless of score and will be aggressive regardless of score and we're in a great matchup and have been the best passing offense in football, taking on one of the worst passing defenses in football. And then even with everything breaking the wrong way in game flow and the way Brady looked early in the game and the way Washington was able to kind of come up with ways to throw buck, the Bucks off, even with all of that, we still got down to that thin line at the end of the game that if it had broken the other way, the points still end up being there. Uh, the Devontae Adams and Marcus Valdez scantling one was never one that I was in love with from like a logical standpoint. But when you just look big picture, you're not always going to be able to predict MVS's big games. That's kind of the point of, of a player like MVS. But you can position yourself so that you maximize the gains that you get when he does hit his big game which, as we just walked through, is not just playing MVS, but playing MVS and Devontae together, which both guys had ownership. But how many people played those two together? I would venture to guess in the tournaments I was in, nobody, 
And especially if anybody did, they would have done it with other pieces from that game with Aaron Rodgers. Now, uh, the I will say this. Those two Packers receivers were likeliest to hit for a big game in a game in which one of the Seahawks receivers also hit for a big game. But I didn't need to tie in that extra bet because I would have had to have taken off one of the Bucks receivers, which is a much more high probability bet that worked better with the other parts of my roster. So basically, I had to go in saying, I know that I am betting on the Seahawks having a good game through the air as well. That just doesn't fit onto this roster. Now, if I were playing five entries, that's where I start branching out from there. So I would then say, okay, well, now I'm betting on the Packers two wide receivers having a big game. Let me get one of these Seahawks wide receivers on this roster. Let me get Tyler Lockett on this second roster and let me take one of these Bucks wide receivers off of this roster. Let me, and, and hope that everything's concentrated on Evans or on Godwin, especially if we're getting into larger field tournaments. Because maybe Evans gets 35 points and Godwin gets 20. Uh, maybe Godwin gets 35 points and maybe Evans gets 20. So this goes back to what we were talking about in 2019, where I would kind of walk through like, okay, I'm going to have 14 rosters this week. I really want to bet on the Vikings offense. So I'm going to have Stefan Diggs on seven rosters and I'm going to have Thielen on five rosters. And on one of these rosters, they're going to overlap. So that's 11 rosters total, right? Like four solo Thielen, six solo uh, digs, one where they're overlapping, and then like three Dalvin Cook rosters because I expect the points to come through the air, but I want to play off of that as far as the other ways that the points could come. And so that's kind of the next step on these types of things is, is you could say, okay, well, let me pivot to lock it on one of these rosters and let me pivot down to uh, Leonard Fournette and bet on the Bucks offense and bet on some of the touchdowns coming through Fournette. Let me kind of, you know, do things differently around my core bets so that I'm still betting on these offenses or betting on these game environments so that all my rosters are kind of collecting points if the game environment goes the right way, but kind of vary the way that I'm doing things. Now, that's kind of obviously a broader discussion. And if you were on the site in 2019, we spent a lot of time talking about the different ways to piece those things together. I won't go into all of that right now. Maybe we'll hit on that in a future week as far as exactly how I would really branch out to these kind of five to 20 roster builds. But that gives you an example of how I take this core roster approach and kind of build it out into additional rosters from there. The very last thing I want to mention is NFL teams every week go back to the drawing board and try to figure out how to beat the team that they're going to be playing that week. And there is a recency bias tendency, obviously, in, in DFS. But there's a recency bias tendency toward teams and changing production from those teams. In other words, if a defense has one really good week, people will often start shifting their perspective on that defense. If an offense has one really good week, people will often start shifting their perspective on that offense. And the more that we, this really doesn't relate to everything that we've just been talking about, but I think this is an important note to pin down here. The more that we can continually keep big picture in mind and what we know from a macro sense in mind, the, the better off we're going to be. So we saw the Broncos versus Dallas. We saw what the Cowboys offense looked like and Everybody kind of, you know, you it's easy to overrate the Broncos defense from there. People didn't really underrate the Cowboys offense, but we see a week later what the Cowboys offense did to Atlanta. I think they had 36 points at halftime, um, you know, just absurd production. But then also tying over to Atlanta, we just saw Atlanta 
put up 27 points against a really good New Orleans defense. And Matt Ryan was like not popular, but popular enough for being a guy with no weapons heading into this last week against Dallas, a Dallas defense that people were avoiding earlier in the season and then a couple disappointing games. And now people are like, oh, well, let's go to the Falcons against Dallas. And then, you know, the Falcons disappoint. And it's what Matthew Barry in the past would have called whack-a-mole, right? Like it's just chasing what happened the previous week or the previous couple of weeks rather than taking the big picture view and understanding like, look, a team is sometimes going to come up with a game plan to stop an opponent. That doesn't mean that this team, like, let's look at the Patriots, right? The Patriots held the Bucks to 19 points. The Patriots brought the Cowboys to overtime. The Patriots made Justin Herbert look like a college player, and they made the Browns look pathetic. The Patriots also got pasted by Jameis Winston and the Saints and by Davis Mills and the Texans. So different weeks are going to be different. Sometimes the game plan works out. Sometimes it doesn't. And so if people start getting scared of playing a passing attack against Washington because of what they just did to the Bucks, right? Like keep that in mind that every week is totally different. And oftentimes the macro that we know about a team already is accurate. We also see that with teams like the Dolphins. Like we came, their defense was great last year. We came into this season with respect for their defense. They had several bad weeks. Everybody started attacking them. But again, as we've talked about, teams get better throughout the season. Their defense has looked much better for over like the last month of, of play, but people are slow to adjust to things like that. Uh, same thing with the Giants, right? The Giants were a, never a great defense last year, but basically like very solid throughout the season, like a team that you don't boost players against. You don't necessarily downgrade them. And then started the season, they were attackable. And then they start putting things together. Uh, Hilo talks about this a lot with, you know, complicated zone schemes and communication. And we talked about this a couple of years ago with the Vikings defense. The Vikings defense almost always starts slow because of complicated communications in their in their zone heavy scheme. And then as the season moves along, they start putting these things together. So don't overrate what just happened. And we talk about that all the time in terms of players. But it's also important to stretch that out into teams and understand that every team is game planning. Every week is going to be different. And trust the macro knowledge that you have over the micro of what happened most recently. So that's going to do it for this week's segment. Uh, I know we had a few questions earlier. I, I popped in to look at some of them. Uh, so Aaron, I'm going to pass this over to you and you can fire the questions my way and we will see what else we get to tonight. All right. I had to switch over on my phone here. Can you hear me okay still? Yeah, you are coming through good. All right, perfect. Um, all right, this is from today, and we have two questions that came in on uh, on Saturday night's pod that I felt were uh, better left for today. So we got five uh, questions in total here, so I'm going to run through them with you. Um, this one is from the Don Rays. On the Reflection Pod, Hilo mentioned the field is getting sharper in regards to generating leverage. I'm curious to know if this alters our perspective and direction on how to view chalk. Thank you. Um, so no, the, what we want to do is build really good rosters. What we want to understand is where our edge is. What we want to understand is what type of contest type we're in and how deep we have to, how much uncertainty we have to take on in order to beat the field. So if the field had zero awareness of leverage and game theory, 
we could take the best players from the best games, put them together on a better built rosters and just be profitable because the field would be taking individual pieces that aren't correlated and trying to guess right on eight spots at right uh, at once instead of, you know, like, well, let's look at that roster that I just walked through from, from my build this last week. I was betting on four spots. I was betting on each individual cheap running back. I was betting on the Packers passing attack doing well. And I was betting on the Bucks passing attack doing well. If the Bucks passing attack did well, Ricky Seals Jones is probably doing well also. So if we're competing against an entire field of people who are trying to guess right on, let's take out defense, trying to guess right on eight different individual spots, and we are intelligently building rosters, high, high upside, high probability rosters that only bet on four spots, and we only need to get four things right, and they are trying to get eight things right, well, we're just going to win. Like, it's just a fact. Over time, you're going to win. If the field is more aware of leverage and game theory, then you have to then think about those second layer things that we've talked about in terms of like, okay, well, we're getting to a larger field contest. So let me think about Ramondre Stevenson over Mark Ingram. But to me, it's less tied into chalk. And I, I'll, I guess I'll back up and say something I often say, which is everybody's mind works differently. So if your mind works from the angle of like looking at what everybody else is doing and then playing directly off of that, then I guess the answer would be yes to an extent. The uh, It changes our view of chalk because you want to take those extra steps to play off of things even more. For me, the answer is no, because my thing is going to be, let me find, let me let me separate from what everybody else is talking about and the overconfidence and certainty they have based on what happened last week. Like, like two weeks ago, two weeks ago, or I should say not, not week 10, but week nine, it almost felt like there was no way Amari Cooper could fail. That was like the vibe because he was 5,700 and he had just put up 40 plus points with Cooper Rush. But as we talked about last week, if you actually look through Amari's game logs, right? Like he, he has way more games of 12, 13, 15 points than people realize. Way, way, way more games. And he occasionally, it's kind of like Tyler Lockett, like with Amari, when he hits, he hits so big. He often hits for 35 to 40 points when he hits. He did that, I believe, multiple times last season. But when he wasn't doing that, he was getting 12, 15 points. He wasn't Devontae Adams getting the occasional 40 point 45 point game and then getting 25 to 30 the other games, right? Like he was actively hurting your rosters the other games, but the field felt like this guy's so underpriced. You you can't not play Amari. And I played Amari on one of my three rosters. I talked about it uh, last week and I played it only because I had the Broncos passing attack on that roster. I had uh, Bridgewater plus Judy plus Oak, Oak, Oh, Albert O. Um, Okwebunan. There we go. I got it. Uh, I had Okwebunan and Judy and Bridgewater and I, and I had exactly 5,700 in salary left over. And I still didn't want to play Amari just because he wasn't as good of a play as the field thought. But then I was like, well, can I really play Emmanuel Sanders at 5,600 when like I'm literally betting on the Broncos passing attack? I should have Amari when he just fits. But the 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 way I build is like, I want to see what from a macro perspective is actually the best play. And then I can look at ownership projections and be like, oh, wow, 30% of the field. I 
was going to play Amari because he had a big game last week. And sure, he's still a great, like he still has tons of upside, right? But like he's going to hit way less often than 30% of the time. He's going to hit way less often than the field thinks. And so from the way I play, I don't have to overthink about chalk and changing the way I approach leverage because my whole thing is going to be, let me find what I think the best plays are on the slate and build intelligent rosters around them. And then if I'm like too chalky, I can change some things. But generally speaking, like I'm going to focus on building a high probability roster with paths to 200 plus points that are built better than the field is building. And oftentimes, more often than not, by far, I don't have to worry about like additional changes from there. And um, so for me, like it doesn't really change if the field is getting better at leverage or not, because I'm still going to be building better rosters than them. And I think that that's the key, right? Like we just, as long as we're building better rosters, which as Hilo talks about, if everybody else is on like layer one or layer two, and we're on layer three or four, well, we're still way ahead of the field building better rosters. And, and I can tell you like, with 100% certainty, the field in general is never going to get down to layer three. Like it's just, it doesn't make enough sense to them and they're boxed in thinking and they don't have the foundation of like, if you're on OWS, you've been hearing this stuff talked about for years and now you're in inner, inner circle and you're absorbing it every week. And it can start to feel like these are things that everybody knows. But if you left the OWS bubble and talked to the average DFS player, they don't have any, I can't tell you how many people I know who play DFS and even like friends of mine who subscribe to OWS to support me and read the site on occasion and have no concept of how to play DFS correctly. And they put in time every week and put their seven or eight players from seven or eight different teams on their rosters every week. And that's still going on at a high level kind of across the board. So, um, you know, as long as you're building great rosters, you're going to be more profitable over time than people who are not. So that's kind of like a, I don't know, a bigger answer there than that necessarily was than the question that was necessarily being asked, but, um, a lot of interesting angles to explore in that one. All right, Jan, this one's going to be hard to do, but I'm going to give you uh, G Heller's uh, lineup from last week. Um, and he wants to see if you can kind of poke some holes in it. This is for a uh, three max with uh, 12,000 entries, basically. All right. Um, the roster is Brady, Evans, Godwin, and the Tampa Bay defense. Uh, Johnson and Connor at running back. Arnold at tight end. Pittman at wide receiver and Washington at the flex. Um, did you catch all that? I know it's kind of tough to throw that out there out loud. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I saw this question earlier. So I have the, this roster kind of stored in mind already. Um, so the only, the, like my main criticism of this roster, and I, and I hate criticizing rosters because the different people see things different ways. And I can't tell you, how many times um, uh, Roto Maven can attest to this? Cause he, there was one Sunday morning where he was asking me something about his roster. And it was like, I can't tell you how many times I have told, so like I have told somebody what I didn't like about their roster on a Sunday morning and they've changed things. And like the player that they had would have done like way better than what they ended up changing things to. Right. Because there's, we all have, we have our ways of going through the process of how we're building the roster and how we see things. So it's one thing to give me your roster. It's another thing to walk through your thought process, in which case I might say, oh yeah, I do see that. Um, 
so like I walked through my roster and if I had just if if I had just laid out my roster for somebody, they they might have said, Well, you can't play Devontae Adams and Marquez Valdez Scantling on the same roster, especially without a quarterback from this game and especially without a wide receiver from the other side of this game. That just doesn't make sense. But from the approach that I took to that roster and the way I was able to describe it, it makes an enormous amount of sense. It was it was very obviously a plus EV roster. So uh, I say all that to say, like picking apart somebody's roster post hindsight is always like a a little touchy to me because I don't want to say that something was done incorrectly that might've actually been done correctly. Uh, So my only thing with this roster is it just, it needs more to go right. It needs um, like, like James Connor isn't a better play than Mark Ingram. So you're spending 1700 extra in salary. I think it was for like just to be a little bit different, but you're still getting a chalky piece. And so now you've tied up an extra 1700 in salary where you're just kind of hoping that things break your way as opposed to actually gaining an edge. Um, And then Dan Arnold, great play, but chalk. Michael Pittman, great play, but chalk. James Washington, uh, totally fine play. Obviously you've got Mason Rudolph at quarterback. So you've got some question marks there, but totally fine play. Uh, But there's just like the pieces kind of don't, tell a story in a way that you can say i'm getting all this chalk and the pieces tell a story and so then the the tampa defense and heller asked in the question that you know i did the bucks stack plus tampa defense to kind of figuring that would be different which it is but it's not like it doesn't do enough that makes it different because the range of scoring for defenses is like you know five to twelve points and so if you get 12 points from this defense and somebody else is getting eight points from another defense with their Brady Godwin Evans stack. It doesn't really like separate you from the other Brady Godwin Evans stacks. So if you do that and then you add like a bunch of chalky pieces and Pittman and Arnold and these two running backs, um, it it just isn't like, especially in a contest with 12, uh, 11, 12,000 entries, it's a hard path to first place. And then I'll also say, the one way that the Bucks defense does differentiate is if they score a touchdown. But if they score a touchdown, then you do start to get to the point where you're actually taking away points from Brady, Godwin, and Evans. Because now, like, if the Bucks score 35 points, but one of those touchdowns came from the defense, and they're up 35 to 7 or 35 to 10 or something, well, now we're starting to lose the chances of, of them continuing to pass deep into the game. Now you're in the fourth quarter where they're like, well, we're up 35 to 10. We'll run our offense, but let's involve Fournette a little bit more. Let's get Ronald Jones on the field. Uh, keep guys fresh for our Super Bowl run. So yeah, it, it's it it's not. And I'll say it like this, and I'll and I'll say it very specifically like this, Greg, because I know that you've been around forever and you've always asked sharp questions. So I'll say it like this: it's like it's just not my favorite. Um, and I think that if it were somebody who I whose name I've never heard before, I would tiptoe around that a little bit more. But I know how sharp you've been over the years asking questions in the chat pod and different places like that. Yeah, that's just not my favorite build. And I think that you've built better rosters than that um, yourself over time. So that kind of that's kind of a sense of what I don't love about that particular roster. And it's not that it couldn't win because you can easily tally up. 200 plus points from that group of players. It's just that you're you're not giving yourselves a lot of paths to first place or a lot of outs if we want to use poker terminology. All right. This one's from Crazy Coop. Is there a rule of thumb or any way to properly adjust percentage owned for SE 
uh, for a single entry, three entry max. Uh, using the percentage own percentage, <laughs> the way I read this is funny because the way I have to read the percentages here, I, I realize this is like the uh, uh, anchor man where he just reads anything on the screen. <laughs> uh, let, let me rephrase this for you, Jan. Basically, we have the MME percentage owned on the site, and um, it comes from MME. But what about for single entry and three max? Can we use it in any kind of way to kind of determine what these contests will be? Yeah. So firstly, I've seen people in chat. I know that we've gotten feedback on this about our ownership projections needing to be improved. So first off, uh, a thought on that. I will say uh, Aaron and I have talked about this and something we're going to be digging into in the off season about like what we can do with ownership projections. I'll also say that I subscribe to a lot of sites and use them only for ownership projections. Um, and ownership projections have been off kind of across the industry this year. So uh, just an interesting thing to note. And it's just, it's a, I think a thing of like how unpredictable this season has been has made it less predictable for ownership. But uh, I, I'll also know that that is something we're going to be digging into the off season and seeing like what, if anything, we can be doing to improve in that area. As for applying MME ownership, because our ownership projections are for the millimaker, and that's kind of what most sites do. And then you kind of have to extrapolate from there to say, what will this be in this type of contest? So generally speaking, what we find is the most robust popular plays. So in other words, a player like Cubspan, like his process is reading the NFL Edge and then listening to podcasts all week, not to find out who the podcasts are saying are the good plays so that he can play them, but to find out which chalk is robust and which is fragile. So if he's seeing 12% owned on wide receiver one and 12% owned on wide receiver two, but wide receiver one has been talked up on like five different podcasts and wide receiver two's name hasn't come up at all. Well, wide receiver one is the guy whose ownership projection is more robust. Wide receiver one is the guy likelier to end up at 15% or 18% or 20% owned. Wide receiver two is likelier to be 7% owned, 6% owned. Well, the robust chalk is going to become more chalky in smaller field single entry tournaments. So I never worry too much about a specific number in terms of ownership, but I basically, if I'm playing single entry, but I look and see, okay, if this guy's projecting at 20% owned, that means he's going to be popular in single entry play. So I don't need to worry about it. That means he's 30% owned or 40% owned or 45% owned. To me, I just need to know this guy's going to be high owned, probably higher owned than 20%. And then as far as identifying which chalk is robust and which chalk is fragile and doing that without having the time to listen to tons of podcasts or without maybe your brain working that way, right? Because for me, if I listen to a ton of podcasts, A, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enjoy it. And B, I would like my mind would get too flooded with potential plays and different angles to consider as opposed to being able to just use that for an understanding of which chalk is fragile and which chalk is robust. If if you're not 
the type of person who can or wants to or would be good at sitting down and listening to podcasts all week, you can think through things logically, right? Like when Amari was 5,700 and had just had a big game, if you're kind of in the DFS world, you know how chalk forms, right? Like, you know, he's going to be high owned in the millimaker and whatever his projection is in the millimaker, it's going to be much higher than that single entry. Dearance Johnson, Mark Ingram, you know that whatever their projection is in the millimaker, it's going to be much higher than that in single entry. And so that's kind of the main way to move the projections from one spot to the other is just realize the smaller the tournament type and the fewer the entries people are able to put in, the tighter they tend to play. So if somebody is is projecting is like some super sharp play well everybody in single entry is going to think well i've got to play this guy he's some super sharp play um and so yeah just just know that ownership is going to rise on those guys and ownership will be lower on the lower owned guys as you get into single entry all right uh this came in last week jm but i'm gonna read these off these came in for hilo show but uh felt they fit pretty well uh for this tuesday show this is from uh watton if only playing three to five kings per slate and feeling urgency with sufficient loss to bankroll on the year how does one narrow down a player pool if constantly fighting the urge to play all angles from a team's offense for example he was battling tampa bay versus washington Indy and Minnesota um, and LA Chargers stack blocks for week 10. He says he wants to make 10 to 12 teams hitting on all the most likely angles, but his mindset has often resulted in rough Sunday nights this year. I've always budgeted 25% of bankroll for NFL slate. But I've struggled with self-discipline this year, obsessing with always wanting to cover the every angle process. Really appreciate any feedback. Love the site. Apologize for the novel. Thank you. So there's a saying in investing that basically wealth is protected through diversification and wealth is created through concentration. There's also a saying on OWS from some guy named JM to win that fear is at the root of most bad rosters. And if you're playing with the mindset of lost bankroll and getting it back, you're probably going to build lesser rosters than you could otherwise build. They may still be plus EV, but they're not going to be as plus EV as you could if you were in a positive headspace with an aggressive mindset. So that's step one is is if money is kind of the the driving force behind your DFS play, then it's going to be an issue for your DFS play because you're going to think too much about protecting your money and not enough about making money. And I like there was something that Bales said years ago, and I think it was a Business Insider interview. And he, he said... Basically, he said that he looks at dropping $10,000 on a slate the way he looks at buying a hamburger at McDonald's. And he said not to trivialize what $10,000 is, but just to say you have to eat. In other words, you have to lay out money in DFS to make money back. And you have to lay out 
another thing Bale's talked about. It was 2000, well, it doesn't matter, 2016 or 2017, opening day in baseball. Bale's had a huge day. Um, I remember a buddy, a, a buddy and I were watching opening day together. And I was watching my rosters for like the first hour because I still had hope. And then everything was falling apart from my rosters. And I was just like watching Bales at the top of like every tournament. And then he lost for, I think it was two months straight. Every slate in a daily sport where you get to put in a new roster every single day. Why? Not because he was playing poorly, but because he was playing the same way that he played to have that huge day. And so there has to be a willingness to be aggressive and take on risks and actually chase first place. And one of the most detrimental mindsets is often trying to cover all the bases. It's it's better to be like, just think about it mathematically. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to bet on the Colts offense and I am going to, or Vikings offense is an even better example because you had the bringbacks in that game and the different ways it could play out. And you could say, because even if you get that right, you still have your other six spots on your roster. So you could say, I'm going to bet on Jefferson and Mike Williams because I think that's the likeliest way for this game to blow up. And so I'm going to do that on five of my 12 rosters. And then I'm going to have Jefferson and Keenan Allen on another three rosters. And then I'm going to have, you know, or I might even be more, might even be going down from here, like four rosters with Mike Williams and Jefferson and three rosters with Keenan and Justin Jefferson. And uh, then maybe one with Jefferson and Eckler. And then you're going to have a couple Thielens. And so it's like one Thielen plus Jefferson, or one Thielen plus Mike Williams, one Thielen plus Keenan Allen, uh, and then one Dalvin, right? If you just want to play all the angles on the Vikings and bet on what's likeliest, but then also kind of hedge off of that. Well, that's your rosters right there. So it's kind of like what I talked about last week was, was a good example. I said, I've got like 10 running backs I like, so I'm going to focus on one passing attack. The week before that, it was like two running backs or three running backs in the entire player grid. But I had like four different passing attacks I liked. So you've got to find a place where you're going to concentrate things. Otherwise, you're just waiting for all the pieces to fall together on the one roster together. And that's just, it's harder for that to happen. So it could be like, okay, I'm going to bet on Godwin and Evans on all these rosters. Or I'm going to bet on Evans or Godwin on all these rosters. And... I'm going to pick, you know, these two running backs I'm going to go all in on. And now I've kind of got like a core, right? Like I'm, I've got this core of these two running backs and I've got the Bucks wide receivers cycling through all these. And I've got all these different ways I'm playing the Vikings Chargers game. And if I can fit Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman on here from there, great. But kind of like, let me set my priorities and figure out where I want to go broader and where I want to go narrow. Because there is a point where... You have to concentrate your bets in order to maximize your chances of a first place finish. Um, and so that's hard to do. And, and that's, I kind of went deeper into that answer because I know a lot of, a lot of players by week 10, week 11 are kind of feeling like, oh, well, I haven't won yet. What's wrong? Um, so that example of Bales is, is useful and instructive because you can see that there is an element of playing in a certain way that maximizes your chances of first place that also 
like Cubs fan says, rosters that are all the way to the left or all the way to the right. Uh, rosters that either miss hard or that have a shot at first place. And the the timidity that can come from being concerned about losing money or trying to cover all the different spots just makes it really tough mathematically for everything to come together on one roster. Whereas if you say, okay, I'm going to concentrate my bets on the Bucks wideouts and uh, concentrate on the Vikings and Chargers game, but kind of mix and match things, then, then that kind of allows you to if if what you're betting on hits, now you're getting three or four or five roster spots right on a bunch of rosters, and you just need those last pieces to fall in place from there. So uh, that would be kind of my big picture advice for anybody feeling this way is, is figure out a way to say, I'm willing to lose money. I'm going to put in an amount that I'm willing to lose that's not going to affect me if I lose it. That's not going to affect my mindset or my emotions. That can take time and practice as well, right? Like I don't watch games on Sunday or keep up with my rosters on Sunday until later in the day. That took a long time for me to do that and a long time of me wanting to do that before I was actually capable of doing that. So they're like, these things can take time as well, but, um, yeah, like you have to have that willingness to lose. And again, I would say there has to be a point that comes where you're like, all right, I'm going to concentrate my bets on these spots. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but that's okay because if I'm right, I'm also right on on all these rosters. So yeah, those are my thoughts on that. That was a really great answer. I know, you know, a lot of people are, are feeling that pressure, you know, week nine, week 10, week 11, haven't won. And that, that psychology really comes in of, Am I doing this right? So the way you just kind of went through that was really helpful. So thank you. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll also note real quickly, like I haven't had a, a big win this season. And I think I've had, I think I've had three profitable weeks, but they've all been like minimally profitable. And I would say outside of, I don't know, two, two weeks this year, this has been my best partly because we've added all this extra help to the site. And so I'm able to be in a really good headspace and, and build rosters that I feel really strongly about. But I would say very confidently that this has been my best year of play since 2015. Um, But from a results standpoint, it hasn't been my best year of results yet. You know, like two years ago, I took down the Wildcat, which was a 200K win. Last year, I won that game changer on Thanksgiving. That, you know, it's, to me, it's like, well, what what matters more to me, the result, the short-term results or the process that will lead to results over time. And so to me, you know, what would I be down at this point? I don't know, probably like 20K or so. But it takes like, what I'm playing in the game changer right now where it's single entry, right? One one big week in there is 100K, right? You get it, you get it back. And if not, then I'm going to have some weeks down the stretch where I pick up 4K, 5K, 3k, 6k, and then, you know, end up maybe down two or 3000 on the year up five to 10,000 on the year, whatever it is. And then next year I end up having a big weekend because again, 18 weeks is not a lot of weeks. It's not a large sample size in DFS. When you play those daily sports, when you play NBA, when you play MLB and you get used to, I can't tell you how many times in MLB, I went two to three weeks without cashing in a tournament. Um, and when, when you get used to that, you understand that 18 weeks is like two weeks of, of MLB play, two and a half weeks of MLB play. It's not abnormal for you to go through an NFL season and not have a huge win. The thing here is you should be thinking about 
How do I take all the things we're learning in Inner Circle and not just apply them to NFL DFS, but also apply them to prop betting? Also apply them to like Zandemir is at plus 20% on his prop bets this year. That's insane. That's like unimaginable ROI. How do I apply this to showdown play? How do I apply this to flash drafts? How do I start playing NBA and applying this to something I can attack more consistently? And as we've been talking about, how do I apply this type of thinking? Uh, in fact, Rotomave and I were talking about this today on our weekly call, like all the things he was talking about, all the things that he's learned in DFS over the last couple of years and how many, how much that's opened up for him in his life as far as success in other areas. So like, how do I take these things that I'm learning and apply them more broadly so that DFS is like one little piece of the puzzle and I'll be making money in DFS over time because I'm playing it the right way. And the numbers will always work out in your favor over time if you're playing DFS the right way, which more than likely you are. And so I think that that's important too, is like, it's, it's, it's great for people to go out and post their screenshots of wins, but nobody ever talks about losses because that's not sexy and it doesn't bring in subscribers, right? People lose. And, and the main thing is you play in such a way that your wins more than offset your losses because you're not playing to cash. You're playing for first place. And those first place finishes, like, you know, every single one of those is another leg up, so to speak. If we want to talk in like investing terms, uh, every, every first place finishes another leg up and then you might trickle down a little bit from there and then you get your next leg up in your bankroll from there. So, um, so yeah, hopefully that helps as well. All right. I think we're, we're good. Um, there was a question about concentrated offenses, but, um, I'm going to save that for everybody. Mike Johnson's putting together a mid-season recap of all the teams going um, pretty much player by player and giving an outlook, um, plus some uh, fantasy football advice at the end, too. So I'll leave that for the article and let you take it out, JM. Cool. Uh, As always, very much appreciate you guys stopping by live. Very much appreciate those of you who are listening to this after the fact thanks for hanging out i will see you on the i feel like there's something else i should be saying but i think that's everything i will see you on the site throughout the week this week and i will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend